On this episode of the The CMD Podcast, I chop it up about Aaron Rodgers. Did Mans really need to go into two, three days of darkness to figure out if he wants to be a Jet? Russell Wilson, player empowerment or player entitlement in Denver? Lamar Jackson wants his bread. Will somebody, anybody, pay him? Eric Bieniemy finally gets a gig, but it's not the gig that he deserves. Are the LA Clippers now a big three with Russell Westbrook? And finally, how many more coaches does Trey Young have to fire for the Hawks to realize he's not Steph Curry? All of that and more on the latest episode of the The Sam D Podcast. El primero de miles. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the The CMD Podcast. I'm your host, Sin Dismay Jr. I say all the things that your favorites can't say. Follow me on the Elon app at The CMD. That's T-H-E-E-S-A-M-D. And I see some of y'all trying to creep back in. Don't, don't, don't try to sneak your way in. Admit that you came back. Anyway, podcast is also up there at The CMD Podcast. Uh, if you're not down with the Elon app, I get it. I ain't trying to pay for every single little feature either. So if you're on the other apps, I am at the Sandy Podcast on the Zuckerberg app and the China app. Subscribe and rate to the podcast five stars, nothing less. Tell a friend. Podcasts available on all major podcasts and platforms, including the Purple app and the Rogan app. YouTube link is in the podcast description. I am at the Sandy on YouTube. New daily live stream previewing Monday or debuting Monday. You heard that right. So if you haven't tapped in, tap into the YouTube link in the podcast description. For all content, audio and visual, hit up thesamd.com. Musical production done by May 1st Music. Support him at soundcloud.com slash May 1st Music. Look what it took for Aaron Rodgers to decide if he wants to be a New York Jet. Bruh, are you kidding me? What, three days, two days in complete darkness? What is up with your man's A-Raj? And if you're you're not watching on YouTube, hey, man, that, that's on you. But I understand audio audience. I'm still here with you. Let's go ahead and jump right into it, man. Aaron Rodgers' darkness retreat has officially ended. This is as of Friday. This is where he spent his time. It's a partially underground in a hobbit-like structure with 300 square feet of space that included a bathroom. So thankfully he could, you know, do what he got to do there for three days or two days in darkness. A queen size bed. I mean, that's that's poverty shit to me, but OK. Uh, yeah, yeah, king size only Cali King preferred. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, meditation like mat on the floor, meditating in the dark as if sitting in a like basically a studio space. In the dark isn't enough. They provide a mat that you can also meditate on in the dark while you're in the state of meditation. I don't know. I don't get it. Anyway, so this is what A.A. Raj put himself through to figure out if he wants to be a jet or not. If he wants to leave the luxurious confines of the frozen tundra that is Lambeau Field and wants to spin the block and go to MetLife. 
I don't understand it. I truly don't. Why can't he just make his mind up? I feel like this is clearly his offseason, so he's allowed to do whatever he wants to do. But this is becoming every year now, seemingly, where it's like a soap opera when it comes to Aaron Rodgers. And this was the guy that was supposed to be, you know, at one point in time. He certainly has revealed his true self since, you know, quarantine and the pandemic. Uh, but this was a guy that prior to that was thought to be the perfect spokesman. State Farm commercials. Uh, wasn't he in some of those Campbell? Remember the Campbell soup ads? Like he was in all of those. Although, wait, could he be in the Campbell soup ad? Because we know him and his family is not. Normally, isn't that you and your mom's? Like, I don't think his mom's really. Mm. Anywho. So, AAA Raj. This man is trying to decide if he wants to be a quarterback away in Green Bay or a quarterback away in New York. I think he should be a quarterback away in San Francisco, but that's on him. But I watched a four-minute video on what this structure is like. Some other person was in there for, I believe, five days. Someone went five days in this 300 square feet of space, just complete darkness, no sunlight, no nothing, no lamps, no nothing. You're just literally no candles. Like you see, there's candles here. If you're watching along on YouTube, there's candles here just to show light in this space, what it looks like when it's lit up. But I watched a four minute video of this space and dude was bugging out within 15 minutes of sitting in the dark. Like he was like the, the, the silence was deafening, which kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but whatever. So, but he also said, he slept for 16 hours. I don't know about you, but if it takes me to go to a 300 square feet space, like studio space, where it's complete darkness to sleep 16 hours, I don't want it. And I want to sleep for once in my life for 16 hours. I can't do it. But if it takes me to have to do a darkness retreat to get that off, then something ain't right. I should not have to be in a darkness retreat to sleep for this long. But 16 hours of sleep, bro, God. So maybe there is something to it. I mean, most of the times people just pop gummies or smoke one to lay out for that long. But, you know, this dude, A.A. Raj, has to go to a darkness retreat. So what does this actually mean for the Packers or for the Jets? No one kind of knows because everyone's kind of in the standstill. Other QBs are trying to get that bread, though. So while A.A. Raj is out here keeping not only the Packers and the Jets, but potentially other teams in flux until he figures out what the hell he wants to do, we have other teams and other QBs that are like, nah, man, it's time to get it. And one QB that's trying to get it is your man's Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson is trying to figure out how the hell can I spin the narrative? Because this article came out. The Athletic dropped the article that basically gave all the tea of the transaction of Russell Wilson deciding it was time to leave uh, Seattle and where he wanted to go to next, which was Denver because of all the power he was given. And part of the power was getting his own office and being able to have his own staff, including his own QB coach, basically his own coordinators and his own training staff to be able to have access to not only the locker room, but to the facility at large. Now, that's not totally uncommon. There was a lot of talk when this article first dropped that, oh, my God, this is unforeseen. Do we not remember TB12? Do we not remember Eddie Guerrero? 
or the Patriots, and I'll come off the other screen share here for a second. Do we not remember TB12 and Eddie Guerrero, the doctor that's not really a doctor, that was able to have access to the Patriots facility? So, you know, Russell Wilson having an office, Russell Wilson having his own team of, you know, facilitators to help him be whatever he's trying to be in the building is not totally uncommon. It's not unprecedented, but that's not the narrative that was put out there. It's like, oh my God, this is, I've never heard of this. That's why they had to get Tom Brady about the paint in New England because they were getting diminishing returns on his play that they were still having to give him power to keep him. So you know what? You're not even the same dude anymore. We're going to get you up out of here and take that doctor that's not really a doctor that may be administering Lord knows what to keep you and keep this longevity thing going. Y'all can go ahead and go ahead to Tampa. Even if you will give up not winning another Super Bowl just to get the ego, the disease of me and you up out of here. So, you know, this article was really great. It really gave the insight into how allegedly, and we'll go back to the screen, allegedly, you know, Russell Wilson went to ownership and said, I need y'all to fire Pete Carroll and John Schneider, who was the uh, GM. Basically because they're not helping me win. Despite giving me Tyler Lockett, despite giving me DK Metcalf, despite giving me, you know, running backs galore. You're not helping me win. Despite the fact that I made y'all pay me exorbitantly, which meant you had to cut defensive players year after year after year. You're not helping me. Player empowerment, right? Or maybe is it player entitlement? There is a difference. We'll get there. So there was a lot of tea that was dropped in this article. There was a lot of, um, there are people, there are players that are quoted in this story. Current and former Broncos and Seahawks are quoted in this story. But I think that there's a part that's being missed in this story that I think tells to tell. And this is where we get into what's this player empowerment or is this? player empowerment or player entitlement. So I will bring up, let's see if we can do this here on the fly. Give me a sec here. I'm gonna make sure I get the right one up because there's two quotes that one from this story and one from a prior story in another sport that I think are saying the same thing. And once you see who else said a similar quote to Russell Wilson, it might put everything into perspective. So let's go with Russell's quote here, or a source close to Russell, to be specific. Because bring this in on YouTube, you'll be getting a different visual experience. Hope y'all like that. So let's read this here. Uh, Russell Wilson had a interview or had a sat down and did a story with um, Peter King, Sports Illustrator, right? So this is what he told Peter King. Quote, this has to be a player ran kind of team. Now he said this Coming into the season. So this is still Nathaniel Hackett. This is, you know, the, the honeymoon phase of him in Denver. This has to be a player-ran kind of team, Wilson told King. Quote, Coach Hackett gives us the keys to do that. Now, specifically, he gave Russell Wilson keys to an office, okay? Which is not unprecedented, according to this story, but it's very peculiar. So it's not unprecedented, but very peculiar. After his visit, Peter King wrote about Russell Wilson's relationship with Hackett and compared it to his relationship with uh, Pete Carroll. 
Peter King quoted one source close to Russell Wilson saying, quote, Hackett and Russell are not coach player. They're partners. Let me run that back for y'all. Hackett and Russell are not coach player. They're partners. Now, where have we heard that kind of rhetoric before? Let's go ahead and fly this off. Oh, we can go to the sport of basketball. We can go to the league of the NBA. We can go to the conference that is the East. We can go to the division that is Atlantic. And we could go to the point guard that is Kyrie Irving, who said, quote, when I say I'm here with Kev, as in Kevin Durant, I think that it really entails us managing this franchise together alongside Joe Sy, the owner, and Sean Marks. I'll run it back for you. When I say I'm here with Kev, I think that it really entails us managing this franchise together alongside Joe and Sean. Player empowerment or player entitlement? Let me know. Because for Kyrie Irving and Russell Wilson to both say the same thing, different ways, but saying the same thing, like, yo, we run this. Y'all run this with us. I am not just a player. I am not just an employee. I'm a high level exec that just so happens to play. That's what they're thinking. Is that player empowerment? Or is that player entitlement? In this case, because both players, while I think Kyrie is better at what he does than Russell is at what he does, neither one are ones. And that's the problem, right? Neither one are ones. Is Russell Wilson, even at his apex, was Russell Wilson even a top five QB? Debatable. Has Kyrie Irving ever been top five in the league? That's not debatable. He never has. But yet and still, they've been able to convince owners, whether through a package deal, with the Nets and Kevin Durant, whether through player empowerment forcing his way out of Brooklyn once things went sour and now pairing himself with Luka for how long? Who knows? Or Russell Wilson, who, because he was able to get a chip early and then go back to the Super Bowl and, you know, did what he did on the goal line. We'll let that slide for now. But... That empowered him. His stature as a franchise QB empowered him. And more importantly, it entitled him through the Seahawks to then be acquiesced to at every measure. The Seattle Seahawks were getting, they were worrisome about how much they had to basically bend over, pause, and take it from Russell. So being able to get him about the paint, and again, this is another guy that, Probably is on the downside of his career. Now, he made the Broncos, again, player empowerment or player entitlement. He made the Broncos give him a five-year guarantee extension for an exorbitant amount of money. So 
So, and this is a guy that's diminishing returns now, just like Brady was at the end in, in New England. This is what they got. This is what the Broncos got. They're getting diminishing returns on a guy that they had to pay top dollar for and give up a lot of draft collateral for and players just to go get player entitlement or player empowerment. Because this story really breaks down how for trying to get in the game, trying to be in the mix, trying to be in that conversation of we can contend, we can win. This is what the Broncos had to do with, with a new ownership group, a new head coach, even though Russell Wilson wanted Sean Payton, even when he was in Seattle and he tried the power move of getting uh, Schneider and Pete Carroll up out the paint, he was able to do all of this. But in regards to, you know, understanding what was at stake here, Russell Wilson was willing to put his Seahawks tenure on the line because he felt the need that I have to now be in charge. I have played the good soldier, allegedly, even though he had his own team of guys in Seattle as well. One guy was hosting a radio show in Seattle in addition to being like his trainer or another one of the QB assistant coaches or something. And once the trade to Denver happened, man's up and quit his radio show gig because wherever Russ go, I go. That's how man's is keeping it. So this is the type of people he has in his camp that is following him. So again, is Russell Wilson's being surrounded by yes men? It certainly appears to be that way. I mean, he is a, a entity and unto himself. And we had the other report of him and Sierra maybe being funny money that he had to come out and repute because his charity wasn't really given the proper uh, equation of funds to the causes that he said they was or that the foundation said it was. So there's a, there's a lot of firestorms around Russell Wilson and Mance is just really out here floundering. And now he's got Sean Payton and Sean Payton's first decree is yeah, no more office for you. Now they tried to take the office away or they restricted him from the office towards the end of the regular season last season. But Sean Payton's already said, yeah, all these QB assistant coaches and your own training staff and all that, yeah, all that is gone. They're out. Office, second floor, that's, yeah, that's a wrap. So is this going to work where Russell Wilson is now going to have to become one of the guys, one of the 53 again? Because clearly he thought it was like A-Rod. Remember A-Rod when he was a free agent when he was willing to walk away from the Seattle Mariners and your New York Mets were willing to be in the mix. They ultimately didn't want to do it because basically A-Rod was like, oh, I'm the team. It's what, it's 23 guys on the roster? You're like, it's 22 plus one. I'm the one. Like, so you're going to treat them 22 guys one way, but me, I get my own set of rules. I get my own set of stipulations. I get my own, basically... I do whatever I want and you can do whatever you want with the rest of the team. Russell Wilson was one was willing and trying and was given permission to have that type of operation at the tail end in Seattle and the beginning of his tenure with Denver. And the results were mid. Normally you think you're empowering someone by giving them access to all this stuff and then it would flourish, but no, it was the other way around. The Broncos gave all this power. They bent over and said, ah, to Russell Wilson, 
and they got horrific results. Yes, they had a lot of players on IR, new coaching staff, new scheme. They said that Russell was out here trying to bring plays from Seattle into the playbook and wasn't really telling nobody. He was changing calls at the line, and the old linemen didn't know what the hell was going on, changing up snap counts. So they had, like, I think they had uh, the second most false starts in the whole league because Russell would be out there freestyling. There was a lot of criticism of Nathaniel Hack in regards to not getting the plays in on time when it turns out that might have been more of a Russell thing than Nathaniel Hackett. So was Nathaniel Hackett just the fall guy to cover up the diminishing prime of Russell Wilson? Is this really a thing? Is Russell Wilson being able to use Nathaniel Hackett as a scapegoat when it now appears, thanks to this story from the, from the Athletic, that, yo, Russell might have really just been wowing out here freestyling, trying to figure this thing out on the fly. And if he was, what makes you think is going to change that drastically with Sean Payton? Sean Payton clearly has the pedigree and the resume for Russell to not want to do all that, especially if you want to believe the, the story of him wanting to fire Pete Carroll for Sean Payton. But once you get a taste of that entitlement, can you really go backwards? Especially when you're heading towards the end of your career, the team is mid, your performance has been mid. Are you really willing to be around the other 53 guys, 52 guys? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how that goes, but I think more or less it's, it's going to be a, when you look at who's in that division, when you look at the Raiders, assuming they get better, when you look at the Chiefs who are in the middle of a dynasty, when you look at the Chargers who are always on the cusp, where do the Denver Broncos fit in that scenario? Where do they fit in that division to truly have a chance to vie for a division crown or a wild card? Where's the movement going to happen? Who's going to fall back for them to jump up? Jay Herbo and the Chargers aren't going anywhere. You want to give me the Raiders? Sure. But I would like to assume they have a plan in place to supplant Derek Carr. And then you have the Chiefs and Mahomes, who might be on the run of how many more, of who knows how many more Super Bowls. So where is that movement going to come for the Broncos being led by a, I think, a diminishing asset and Russell Wilson, who, who they had to pay top dollar to, Sean Payton, who they don't disclose uh, coaching salaries, but we know he was asking for the moon and the stars from every other team, so we assume he got that from Denver. You're paying a lot of stuff for a QB coach combo that we're not even sure works. But if you got Walmart money, does it even really matter? Moving on, I mentioned Derek Carr. Derek Carr is trying to get paid. How much are you willing to pay Derek Carr? Let's go here on the YouTube. Update, Derek Carr seeks a contract worth $35 plus million per year. Quote, he doesn't need to be the first quarterback to sign. And then there's the editorial comment here. That's a relatively very fair contract for a veteran. I'm sorry, man. 35 plus mil? But Derek Carr, we see the numbers that Derek Jones was, uh, Daniel Jones, excuse me, was out here trying to go get. And that was astronomical. And I don't know whose demand is worse. 
I think Daniel Jones' demand is worse, but Derek Carr's demands isn't that far behind. I, I mean, I know the the revenue is going to go up, and the next collective bargaining agreement is is uh yeah that's yeah that's definitely going to be a thing. So if you're the Jets, you have three options: either you go all in and uh, and hope that Aaron Rodgers picks you. You do the check down option of Derek Carr, or do you try to trade up in the draft? Do you try to go get a CJ Stroud or a Bryce Young? Or do you jump out the window all the way? And where is it? Let me make sure I got it. For Anthony Richardson, who is skyrocketing up a lot of draft boards, even to the point where there are actually some draft boards that have the first QB taking, taken as being Anthony Richardson, allegedly. This is draft season, so much like trade season, I always try to warn people, look, don't believe everything you hear. Draft season is always the same thing, no matter what league it is, whether it's NBA, NFL, whatever. You never want to believe every single thing. But there's been some reporting done that Florida QB Anthony Richardson is the biggest, quote, variance league-wide, end quote, on feeling about a QB. Some NFL teams have a first-round grade on him, while others have a fourth-round grade. A quote from one NFL executive, he's Cam Newton and Justin Fields combined. Bruh. I could see that being amazing and horrible all in the same sentence. Like, I don't know if that's even that much of a of a compliment like Cam Newton. So that means you're erratic. Justin Fields. So that means you're erratic. I, I don't know where, where that puts you. If you're breaking down the skills of the Anthony Richardson, he certainly looks the part in today's NFL of bigger, stronger, faster. He is in that mold, but he also has horrific accuracy and probably should not play next year, no matter where he gets drafted. I don't care if you, are, are, you know, if you jump out there and take him in the first round, cool. I still wouldn't start him next year. And if you take him in the fourth round, then yeah, then you definitely have no pressure to start him anytime soon. But this is, these are the options now if you're the Jets. Not necessarily take Anthony Richardson, but in a sense of do you wait for Aaron Rodgers to figure it out? Do you be proactive and just go get Derek Carr? Or do you make a deal and move up into the upper tier of the draft and try to go get a CJ Stroud, a Bryce Young, hopefully not Will Levitz, but, you know, one of the QBs. One of the QBs. Are you willing to do that if you're the Jets? If that's something the New York Jets should consider. Forget Aaron Rodgers. Forget Derek Carr. We need to trade up and to get one of these quarterbacks. Now we can pair a young Close to ready now QB in a CJ Stroud or Bryce Young and pair them with all this offensive talent that the Jets have. And clearly they have defensive talent too, but in terms of a young QB walks in and he has receivers and he's got running backs, he's got a solid old line, and you know, he has a couple of tight ends, like he's got a plethora of running backs. Like there's a lot there to walk into. That's why I don't know what Aaron Rodgers is taking so long to figure out. 
the talent that the Jets, the talent that the Jets have should be enough for Aaron Rodgers to be like, you know what? They got like three running backs. They got at least two. They have a stud receiver in Wilson. But they have other receivers too that with my, you know, abilities could become solid twos. They could have two solid twos. I mean, hell, even Denzel Mims might live up to the potential with Aaron Rodgers. Like, the Jets have a squad. There's no better QB away team than the New York Jets. Maybe you want to say the 49ers? Maybe. But in terms of this talent? Because now I want to see this, I want to see that 49er defense without D'Amico Ryans. But in regards to just talent and young talent, I don't know where else you'll go if you're Aaron Rodgers and you know you only got about two top tier years left. Give me these young top tier talent to go with along with my old top tier talent and let's see how far that can go. That might be the only type of thing that can get in the way of this Chiefs dynasty. It's something like that where you're bringing in a still top five QB. I'll give him that grace in Aaron Rodgers and pair that with all the drafting that Joe Douglas has been doing over his first couple of years with the Jets and the fact that that defense has played well. Now, Robert Sala, I'm not sold on him as a coach by any stretch, but just from a pure talent standpoint, I know how I feel about talent over everything. I, I think that's a no-brainer if I'm Aaron Rodgers. That, that's a no-brainer. But if you're the Jets, are you willing to wait on that? Or do you go get a stopgap in Derek Carr, who you're not investing? I mean, if I got to give... Derek Carr, how much he said he wanted? 35 mil a year, 35 plus mil a year for Derek Carr. <sighs> I, I mean, I guess, I guess like that. That's kind of the problem. Like you're going to have to you're, you're taking in Aaron Rodgers money, which is way more than this 35 plus. But at least you're getting still top-tier QB play. Derek Carr has been an enigma on this podcast. So I've been asking, is Derek Carr top 10? Sometimes he does. Sometimes he looks to be a top 20 QB. So I don't know if I'm willing to pay 35 mil, but I guess if, if the Giants are going to have to pay Daniel Jones close to, close to the same amount, if not more, then I guess if you're the Jets, you have to pay Derek Carr 35 plus, I guess. But that's, I don't know where this money stops. For the average QB, for mid QBs, I mean, Jimmy G has to be salivating. But unfortunately, the only QB that can't salivate is this man, Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson wants a fully guaranteed contract in line with Deshaun Watson. And then make sure I got the right drop. Yeah, I mean, I got the right drop. Make sure to pot that up. I told you! I told you! When I, I said he you. should ask for 300. I said 300, right? I told you. I told you. Not a penny less, right? I told you. I told you. I try to tell y'all when that contract was announced, I went on Twitter Spaces on the Elon app, and I said, yo, I'm Fam Lamar. I want the same thing. Don't you come to me with no incentive laden contract. Don't you come to me with nothing. Deshaun got what? Oh, I want that too. I said it then. Some people thought I was trying to trying to troll. Some people thought I was just being a contrarian. Now, here we are about a year later, and Lamar Jackson wants fully guaranteed contract in line with Deshaun Watson. I told you! I told you! 
I mean, y'all think I'd be bullshitting. I'd be trying to tell y'all, man, like, once someone breaks the bank like that, and I'll, I'll read a little blurb here. I'll go ahead and bring it down to the blurb. Lamar Jackson wants a fully guaranteed deal similar to the five-year, $230 million deal the Browns gave Deshaun Watson. According to sources, Lamar turned down a five-year, $250 million contract with, here's the caveat, $133 million guaranteed. Why on earth? Would you offer this man 133 million guaranteed when Kyler Murray got 160? Why? Why would you do that? Who in the Ravens front office thought it would be smart, thought it would be savvy to offer 27 million less to a league MVP? Who in their right mind in that Ravens front office had the bright idea to, well, let's offer Lamar because he has no agent, so clearly he's a dummy. Let's offer him $27 million less than Kyle Murray? What? What? Who was the genius in Baltimore that assumed that Lamar Jackson with no representations of all we know we could pull a fast one on him, let's offer him more total money that's incentive-based than the actual thing of giving him what he wants, which is fully guaranteed bread. Deshaun got 230 guaranteed. I'm sure early in this process, if they would have said, I will right, we'll give you 231, he probably takes that. Just to prove the point that I'm better than him. But now they're trying to give me incentive-laden contracts instead of the fully guaranteed contract that I asked for? Oh, okay. Okay. Now I'm going to go holler at the players union. Now I'm going to go do all this stuff. Now you want me to go on the road for playoff games? I'm not showing up. No. No. First of all, I'm hurt. Second of all, y'all keep playing with my money. Y'all think because I don't have an agent that I don't know how to represent myself and get fair market value. The market value is now 230 mil guaranteed. I don't care about incentive-laden contracts no more. The standard has now been set. I don't care if other owners around the league are pissed off at the Browns. The fact of the matter is, is that they were desperate enough and had the balls enough to do something that had never been done before in this league and give someone a quarterback, that level of money fully guaranteed. So now you know what? The bar has been set. 230, I want 250. If I was uh, Lamar's agent or representat uh, representative or whatever, I'd be like, yo, 300. 300. Why not? I'm that much better than Deshaun Watson. And I could argue that, that I am worth 70 more million guaranteed, which if you average it out annually, isn't that much in the grand scheme. I am worth that much more per year than Deshaun Watson. That's how I would move if I'm Lamar, because let's say he gets to 250 guaranteed. That's only 20 million more. If it's a five-year deal, that's only $4 million more. After tax and everything else, that's maybe $1.7, if he's lucky, more. 
Isn't Lamar Jackson worth 1.7 more in his bank more than Deshaun Watson? If I'm him, I'm saying yes. Deshaun Watson is not only 1.7 million after taxes more than me. I'm worth more annually more. I'm the gap between Lamar Jackson and Deshaun Watson is that much. It's not 1.7. It's more than that. So 300. Five years, that's 60 mil. Okay, we, we, we can do that math. 60 mil. Yeah, I'm worth that much more as a former league MVP, face of the league potential, cover of Madden, one of the most popular, one of the most viral players. Yes, I have brought that much revenue to not only the Ravens, but to the entire NFL itself. Yes, 300 million. Pay me. I don't know why they keep playing with that man. I don't know why they keep playing with that man. He needs to get his money. He needs to get his money. Lamar is worth way more than Deshaun Watson and always has, by the way. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure why the Ravens are trying to play hardball, but it's looking like the real possibility. In Atlanta, Arthur Blank, don't play games, Arthur Blank. Don't play games. If you trade for him, and you're going to have to give up a boatload. You also should give him that money. Not no incentive laden. Give him that guaranteed bread. 250. 250 should not be a problem for Arthur, Arthur Blank. Those jerseys are going to sell. Like certain jerseys become national jerseys. Football sometimes is a very regional sport. But Lamar, because of all of this that he's gone through in this negotiation process... And the way that, you know, people that don't look like him have been openly criticizing him throughout his career. He has carried a fan base that is outside of Baltimore. So there will be a lot of people that will follow wherever Lamar ends up. So if the Falcons jump out there and do it, it's a black city already. It's a team that's been embraced by that culture. Like if Lamar goes to Atlanta, it's going to be pandemonium. It's going to be real. It's going to come to the thing where that money you're going to have to pay him guaranteed. You're going to make so much more than that. Ticket sales through the roof. Season ticket plans through the roof. Game pack plans through the roof. Jersey revenue, merch, everything through the roof. Do they still do PSLs? Through the roof. Whatever. They're going to like him in Atlanta. I mean, the businesses, the, the sponsorship deals, like it's going to be insane if Lamar is able to go there. So if Baltimore doesn't want to pay him, okay, go ahead and mortgage him. Flip him for everything. But Atlanta, Arthur Blank, don't play no games. Give him the same guaranteed money. Deshaun Watson broke the mold. Like that contract will be one of those ones that, that, stands the test of time because now you can't ever say no one can get fully guaranteed money. And Lamar Jackson is saying, okay, that's now the bar, not the bar. These other QBs that keep signing. Well, I think Aaron Rodgers is going to make 50 mil. Like look at the contract that Patrick Mahomes is on. That's a bargain right now. Cause a lot of it is incentive based 500 million. We got crazy. Wow. By the numbers, but a lot of it is incentive based. He's not getting the most guaranteed. 
If I'm his agent, I'm spinning the block on the Chiefs. Like, yo, yo, that's that's two Super Bowls. Two Super Bowl MVPs and another regular season MVP. We need to talk. If I'm Patrick Mahomes, I am rooting like hell for Lamar Jackson to get 250 guaranteed or even 300 guaranteed. Because then I am spinning the block on the Chiefs like, hey, bro. Another Super Bowl, another Super Bowl MVP, another regular season MVP. I know that 500 balloon, you know, ballooned incentive based number was was nice. Hey, maybe now we talk about that 500 guaranteed. From the problematic nature of Lamar Jackson potentially not getting fully guaranteed money, we move on to another problematic thing in the shield. That is the NFL. Uh, Eric Bieniemy did not get a head coaching job yet again, which seems to be the umpteenth time in a row that he has been passed over. But he has finally left Kansas City. He has fully left Kansas City. He is now with the Washington Commanders, and he is now the assistant head coach and offensive coordinator with play call responsibilities because apparently that's one of the big bugaboos for uh, the Washington Commanders. So Eric Bieniemy bounces. He leaves Patrick Mahomes. He leaves Andy Reid. Uh, he goes to watch the Commanders where they have a lot of weapons, but I, th- I still think they're QB away. I mean, if you're a believer in Sam Howell, salute, would it be me? But Eric Bieniemy has certainly come under fire, and he's come under fire from people that don't look like him, but he has also come under fire from people who do like him, who do look like him, and former players. And one of those players is uh, Shady McCoy, LaShawn McCoy, who uh, said, don't believe the hype. Um, he's not that great. You know, basically playing up to a lot of the same tropes that have been put out there about Eric Bieniemy. I'm not going to get into what Shady said because I don't really, like, look, Shady was at the tail, tail end of his career. He had fumbling problems at the end, and allegedly Eric Bieniemy tried to tell LaShawn McCoy to uh, keep it high and tight, as Tyreek Hill tweeted out. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to buy into that. But Eric Bieniemy had a lot of things to say in his introductory press conference, and someone smartly also asked him about LaShawn McCoy's comments. So let's go ahead and get that. LaShawn McCoy is a future Hall of Fame runner, okay? Everybody's entitled to their own position, to their own uh, comments and how they feel. When it's all said and done with, I think that's all I have to say because he's entitled to his own opinion. That's life, okay? You got good and you have bad, you know? It does not impact me in any way because one thing that you learn when you're in this position, you have to learn to eliminate distractions, all right? My job is to focus on the now. Everything outside these walls has no impact on Eric Bieniemy moving forward. Okay, so you know Eric Bieniemy, strong words there, strong sentiment, and I I believe him that he's not really worried about LaShawn McCoy's comments. I think the main problem is is that there's been a lot of narratives about um, Eric Bieniemy, and the problem is that they're just unfounded. And, you know, I found there was an article, again, on, on the, uh, the Athletic. And, look, I'm a big fan of journalist, uh, journalism. My goal of getting into this industry originally was to be a journalist. Um, but some of the reporting that's being done is very, very important. And, and, and it needs to continue to be done because some of the information that we're being given here, some of the tea that's been leaked, you wouldn't get that without journalism. So, if you can afford it every year around uh, Black Friday or the holiday season, they always do $1 a month for the athletic. It's $12 a year if you can't do that math. 
but it's always a very important thing that I always pull up. But here is a quote, and I'm doing this here on the fly, so give me a second. But it shows just the, the lack of transparency when it comes to Eric Bieniemy. Um, and I put this out here on the Elon app, and I'll come off this. All right, let's go back to the box for a second. Let me get this lined up properly. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that, all right, now I think I got it better lined up. One persistent knock is Bienemy's lack of full-time play calling experience. But plenty of coordinators, including many white candidates, have been hired as head coaches without checking that box. That includes Doug Peterson and Matt Nagy, the two coordinators who preceded Bienemy under Reed in Kansas City. Why the double standard? Well, we can pretty much say why there's a double standard. It's because Eric Bieniemy is black. That specific example right there puts everything else to bed. I don't care what Shady McCoy is saying. I don't care what your favorite pundits are saying, just trying to get their clicks and views up. The, the fact of the matter is, is that the biggest knock on Bieniemy outside of, oh, he's a bad interview. Like, well, what does that even mean? Apparently, he's very stern and very straightforward. Wow, that's not something we see often in football coaches. Anyway, one of the biggest knocks is the fact that he doesn't play call. He doesn't even play call the plays. Well, that's not true because the biggest play that kept whipping the Eagles ass in the Super Bowl all game long was the play that Bienemy said they should run. That wasn't Andy Reid. That was Eric Bienemy. So the play, the little whip play that kept busting the Eagles' ass, that was Eric Bieniemy. That literally won them a Super Bowl. Bieniemy noticing that play against the Jaguars and saying, let's run that. Let's spin the block and run that, and then let's flip it and reverse it a few times and see how to react, and they bust their ass with it, even on the controversial penalty that basically put them in position to win the game, to win the championship, to win a Lombardi, was that, that same play call by the enemy. But anyway, he doesn't call plays full time. When the two coordinators before him did this position in the same manner, no full-time play calling experience. But yet and still, Doug Peterson gets a job, and Matt Nagy, who was a train wreck in Chicago, also got a job. Oh, but I guess they're great interviews. Would you rather have Eric Bieniemy, who maybe is a horrible interview because he's so stern and straightforward, but knows to call the play that will whip the Philadelphia Eagles ass in the Super Bowl over and over and over again? Or... Matt Nagy, who also didn't have full-time play calling responsibilities and didn't have a clue for multiple seasons with the Chicago Bears, but won the interview. Who would you rather have? Who's more proven? What are we doing here? It's because he's black. That's it. There's no nuance. It's not layered. It's because he's black. Stop making this harder than it has to be. Eric Bieniemy was a former player. Everyone loves former players. It's the hot thing. 
He's a guy that has success as a player. He's a guy that has had success as a coordinator and as a part-time play caller, including the most recent Super Bowl. And he can't get a job because he can't interview well. Do you really care about an interview when you see the results that he's gotten? Some people aren't great test takers. Some people, you put a test in front of them, they freeze up. But then if you just ask them those same questions verbatim in a conversational matter, they'll ace it. That's how it is sometimes. Not everyone can be taught the same. Not everyone, you know, absorbs education in the same way. Some people are not great at interviews. But to keep nitpicking, Eric Bieniemy is absurd. And I don't like to use the R word in terms of racist, but I don't know what other word to use. Prejudiced? I don't know what other words to use. You're running out of excuses. Another Super Bowl. Another regular season MVP and Super Bowl MVP for the quarterback that he was coordinating. And we have old running backs who were washed up and only played one year under him being able to push a narrative forward than the regular season MVP and the Super Bowl MVP and Patrick Mahomes. How does that make sense? Shady has a microphone when the goddamn Patrick Mahomes has the actual Lombardi in his possession. And yet we're going to listen to Shady more than Patrick Mahomes. Make it make sense. On to the NBA. Is Ja really still fine in the West? I mean, y'all heard him during All-Star, right? He was out there talking to the habitual nut hitter. And he said, yeah, they still fine in the West. You know, he's worried about the Warriors. So he's not worried. You know, he's acknowledging that the Warriors still the Warriors. Now, they can only say that because he was talking to the habitual nut hitter. But then he mentioned Phoenix because, of course, they went and got KD. Uh, if you want my thoughts, my instantaneous thoughts, I did a live stream right after the trade deadline. You can find it on my YouTube page. I'll leave a link to the YouTube page in the podcast description. Uh, you know, I've been putting out a lot of uh, shorts and reels and all that stuff and all the socials clips from that. But if you want to catch it in its entirety, have some real good back and forth. And that's something that I want y'all to kind of, you know, be, be a part of. Uh, be sure to pull up to the live streams starting daily this coming Monday from noon. We're going to be going live. We're aiming for an hour. Could go a little longer, but we're aiming for an hour to start while I build this thing up. But yeah, we're going to be going live daily on the YouTube channel at noon. Timeline T or, you know, TLT, whatever you want to call it. Still trying to iron that part out. But we're going to be going live. We're going to be able to uh, navigate live stuff that happens straight from the timeline. Whatever stories that pop up that are interesting to me, I will be talking about those stories on TLT on my YouTube channel. So if you haven't already, I know I've been pushing it a lot, but we're really building, we're really getting some momentum over there about to cross 100K views in totality on the channel. So if you want to pull up, YouTube link is in the uh, podcast description. But yeah, Ja thinks he's still fine in the West. And if you saw that game the other night, you know, in Philly, he was pressing late, tried to dunk on Embiid and he got muffed at the rim. And um, for those on YouTube, this will be a, a really good thing. For those on the audio, you're just going to have to, you know, maybe hit up that YouTube channel to kind of find out what, what I'm about to show the audience here. But I think I know why. I mean, speaking of fine, um, I think I know why Ja was kind of pressing there late in the game. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, for the audio only audience, there is a screen grab of a woman that was in the audience and Jaw is standing right next to her. And it was right after he tried to yam it on Embiid and got muffed. And you can kind of see the look on his face. You can kind of see where maybe that inspiration came from. Just saying, I'm not trying to put anything out there, but if you're interested, she only had 3K followers on IG last time I checked. Just saying, I'm not going to give you the at. Go do your own deep dive like I did to go find it. Anywho, so moving on into the West, the LA Clippers and the Sacramento Kings had a hell of a game last night. A lot of points were scored. 238 and a half was the total. Did you take the over? And if you took the over, good Lord, you were good money by the third quarter. Like this game was absolutely insane as the Kings and the Clippers had a game, the second highest scoring game in NBA history. And yes, it was a double overtime game. Let's go ahead and get this box score up here. 176 to 175. That's a real score. Yes, it took double OT. So, you know, a little, little skewed. But in the sense of the Kings beat the Clippers by scoring 176 points. And PG and Kawhi both played. PG and Kawhi were both out there. This was a no load managing. They beat the Clippers at full strength. Although, strange enough, Bones Highland and Rocco didn't play. Not sure what's going on there with Tyloo's rotation, but you know, the fact of the matter is, is that as we scroll down this box score, I mean, look, look at these points, dog. Like 40 plus in damn near every quarter in the in the in regulation. No team scored less. Then 34 points in any quarter in this game. Look at this offensive rating, 136.9. Like, th this was absurd. We look at this box score, and the Kings have a thing going. Now, I've been kind of insinuating light the beam here, and, you know, I I've been very high on the Kings, but I always thought, like, the other shoe was about to drop. I can tell you this. If the UK boys and De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk are going to put up 40 pieces on Kawhi and Pandemic P, Maybe they ain't going away. Like, I just assumed, and I think most of you would have agreed, that the Kings were just going to fall back down to earth at some point during this season. You know, cool story, Mike Brown. You got them hoping. Cool story, DeMontis Sabonis. Cool story, De'Aaron Fox finally living up to the, you know, the, the reputation that you came into the league with. But ultimately, they were going to come back down to earth. They're not here for play-play. I don't know what's really happening here. Like, I went and rewatched the game. I really can't figure out why they were able to score so easily <laughs> against a team that has Pandemic P and Kawhi Leonard, but this really happened. Malik Monk with a 40-piece. So not only are you getting De'Aaron Fox with a 40-piece, DeMontis Sabonis had a, had a double-double. He fouled out, though. But then you have Malik Monk off the bench with 45? 45 for Malik Monk. I mean, Lakers could have used that, right? I mean... Maybe they wouldn't have had to make all them trades at the trade deadline if they would have just held on to Malik Monk. All right, anyway. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, look at what was happening here in regards to, okay, so we see the 40 pieces for De'Aaron Fox. We see a 40 piece for Malik Monk, DeMonte Sabonis. Like, they got 176 points, and Harrison Barnes only contributed 11. He only took six shots. So look at the shot the distribution. De'Aaron Fox took 27 shots. <laughs> <laughs> Malik Monk took 24 off the bench. <laughs> he took 24 shots. Oh, man. So sometimes the NBA could be really weird. 
And wait, who knew Matthew Delavadova was still in the league? Delhi, still in the league. Interesting. Uh, shout out to Alex Len. Alex Len's still in the league. There's a lot of dudes just kind of hanging around in Sacramento. Uh, but let's get to the main thing here with the Clippers. I'm not going to say this loss is an admiration. I'm not, not going to get into that because clearly we need to take the Kings seriously. But in regards to, you had Kawhi Leonard putting up a 40-piece with six threes. 40-piece with six threes, 16 of 22. Efficient as hell. 16 of 22, 6 of 9 from 3. This probably, and I don't want to jump out the window, but off the top of my head, trying to keep up with the Clippers games and even amongst that, the games that Kawhi has actually played for the Clippers, that's probably his best performance. His best performance offensively. He's had some lockdown defensive games where he's just been that Toronto Spurs monster, but it's been very small sample sizes. But in terms of offensive, 44 points, 16 of 22 from the field, including six of nine from three, perfect from the line, only two turnovers. Three steals, two blocks, like that might have been the best Kawhi Leonard game. I'll have to go back and rewatch some other games just to clarify, just to confirm. But yeah, man, the Pandemic P, 34, 34 and 10, 34, 10 and 5 for Pandemic P, 9 of 18 from the floor. So 50%, 5 of 8 from 3. So you're getting 11 threes from your, your, your two best players. And you're getting highly efficient play, like maybe 62-ish percent between the two of them from the floor and 63% roughly from three from your two best players and you lose? That's got to be gut-wrenching. Yeah, that's got to be gut-wrenching. And let's not forget Russie. Russie came in with a double-double off, off the rip in his debut. He was a starter in this game. How do we feel about that? I'm not too sure how I feel about that, to be quite honest with you, because a double-double for Russie is great. But they're slotting him in as if he's the third option. And we saw how that worked in Lakerland. He's not a third option anymore. Not on a good team. And the Clippers are for sure a good team. But do they take a step back if they're getting Russing in here and, and ingratiating him and making him a third option? Like, I'm not saying Bones Highland is the be-all, end-all. But I think between him and Norm Powell who also had a good game, but off the bench, 24 points, six of 14 shooting, five threes, five of eight. Like there's guys here on this roster who can, and I'm not saying number of Powell's a point. I think Bones Highland is a point, And I think he can be that guy. I think he can start for this team, but they go out there and get the big name and Russell Westbrook and allegedly Derek Rose could be on the buyout market soon as he's finally, you know, realizing that he needs to get away from the meniscus tearing taskmaster, Tom Thibodeau. But in regards to this Clipper thing, and let's be clear as I go here to the screen, um, they did not want him initially. And here's the report. Report. Los Angeles Clippers were internally against Russell Westbrook until Paul George pushed for it. So this is a pandemic P thing. This is pandemic P using his powers again. Player empowerment or player entitlement. Go get my man, Steve Ballmer. My man's wants to pull up. He's been bought out. Go bring my man's in. Is this what we're looking at from a perspective of pandemic P? And let me get this. Yeah, now we can get this good. So for those on YouTube, you can read along. I'll read it for the audio audience. Quote from your man's Brian Windhurst. The Clippers are pretty much admitting that Paul George drove this decision. 
And from what I understand, they were internally against it. They were internally against it. Paul pushed for it publicly and privately. Kawhi supported it and they looked more into it and they were like, quote, well, there are some things he could potentially help us with. So that's kind of the thing here where you get enamored by what Russie can do still to this day on the court. Here's the problem. And we'll go back to the box score with Russie. So he comes out there and he starts to get a good ovation from the L.A. crowd. You know, 7 of 13, 53%, 54% for the floor. That's a good percentage for Russie. That's probably, you know, low-key one of his better games shooting-wise this season. One of four from three. You expect that from Russ. He can't shoot threes. 14 assists. We know at his peak, at his apex, he can, he can stat stuff with the best of them. So 14 dimes, five boards, seven turnovers. That's also the Russie that we know. <laughs> That's also the Russie that we know. So seven turnovers. He fouls out. He shoots one for four from three. But on the bright side, 14 dimes. Five boards, seven of 13 for the floor. But here's the thing, like, you have Paul George, Pandemic P, and you had the board man, Kawhi Leonard. Do you really need a traditional point guard? Both those guys can ISO it or initiate the offense. So you kind of have two point forwards who can kind of initiate the offense. Do you really need a traditional Rondo-like point guard? Do you need a traditional, you know, uh, Steph-type point guard? Like, I don't know if you need a guy just to bring the ball up to get the rock to PG or Kawhi. Like, I understand it's, it's a luxury if you can have someone who can take a point guard off the dribble and set up PG and, and, and board man to work off of curls, pin downs, all that type of stuff. Like, yes, that's a luxury. I just don't know if Russell... If Russi is the one who can really get that for you in a big spot, he could get that for you against the Kings. Because let's be clear, as much as De'Aaron Fox, you know, is 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 a beast offensively, defensively, what he was thought to be hasn't really lived up to it. Right. So I, I'm not going to say based off last night's performance. Now, Russi is going to show that he's back to being Russi. I'm not going to jump out that window. The problem is when Russi is a PG at his best, that means he needs the ball a lot. That's what the 14 dimes here says to me. Like, he had the ball a lot in his hands. Pause. And here's something that I was kind of looking up and trying to figure out is if you look at Russie's stats, and let's go to his usage rate. You want his usage rate to be in the, I would say, low 20s at this point in his career. But in me looking this up and realizing what Russie's uh, usage, usage rate was as a Laker, I came across this here. By the way, his usage rate as a Laker, 28.8. That's way too high because average for a ball-dominant point guard is low 30s. So he's right at 29. That's too high of a usage rate for Russie at this point in his career. Based off one game, you know, last time with the Clippers, it was 23.4 usage rate. That's ideally where I would want Russie at this point in his career. But in looking this up, I saw this number, 41.7. That is the highest usage rate in the history of the National Basketball Association. I thought it was the beard. I thought the beard at 40 had the highest usage rate. I had no idea that Russie had usurped him prior to him even hitting 40. 
41.7, a 42 usage rate? Dog, do you understand? Luca at his best is 38, 39. Beard at his best, at his most ball dominant was a 40. Rusty was a 42? 42. I don't think you understand. I had no idea that was, that is the highest. And I had to look this up to confirm. This is the highest recorded usage rate in history. Let me move this over so people on YouTube can check it out. Bruh, are you kidding me? 41.65 in 2016, 2017. There's the beard with 40. 40.47, so we round down, that's 40. But Rusty at 41.65, 42 usage rate? Bruh. And look at the names on here. I mean, Rusty's got two of the top five. He has two of the top five highest usage rates in the history of the NBA. Bruh, Kobe's here for you Kobe stands. Kobe's has the fourth highest ever. No shock there. Jordan S6. No shock. 86. Yeah, yeah. He was ball dominant. But, you know, played against plumbers. Luca. There's your man Luca. 38.22. So 38's the highest Luca can do. As of right now, he was trending to hit 39 and then Kyrie came. So he's, he's holding on at 38, but it was getting close to 39. Giannis is up here a lot. How come we don't talk about that with Giannis? Giannis has two of the top 10 highest usage rates of all time, including this year. This year, he if the season were over today, he would have the third highest usage rate of all time. Of all time. Embiid's up here a lot. AI, 0102. That was the uh, finals year, right? 0102? Yeah, 37, 37.7, 38 usage rate for AI. MVP year. The baller formerly known as Boogie, Demarcus Cousins, 36 and a half, 37 for Boogie, 2016, 2017. Like, there's some names here that really stand out. Jermaine O'Neal. How is Jermaine O'Neal have a 36? That had to be. Yeah, that was Pacers O'Neal. That was Pacers Jermaine O'Neal. My man, my Melo Carmelo. A lot of people would have assumed he was a lot higher on this list, but the 24th, 24th, his highest usage rate. 2012, 2013, he had a 35.6, 36 usage rate. Man, the baller for me on his boogie, DeMarcus Cutters up here a lot. Stack. Wait, hold up. Hold up. Stack is up here. Jerry Stackhouse, 2000, 2001. 35 usage rate? All right, let's think. Was that Wizards Jerry Stack? Pistons? Nah, but he was sharing a rock with Allen Houston. Maybe after Allen Houston. This is clearly after Allen Houston. Wait, was Stack going that crazy then? Let's see. Let's, let's go ahead. Sorry, sorry to veer from the topic of Westbrook, but I'm enamored by stuff like this. Stackhouse... Yeah, he was a piston. He was an all-star, too. I would hope so with that high of a usage rate. Let's see. How many points was he dropping? Pull that up. That was the next to last year in Detroit. Oh, he was dropping 30 a night. Good Lord. So wait, Stack? When did Stack drop 30? Is this for real? I don't remember Stack dropping 30 a night, dog. 30? Play 40 minutes a night 
took 24 shots, yo. <laughs> yo, Stack getting 30 points on 24 shots. Yo, he shot 40% for the floor. Come on, man. Come on, Stack. Yo, Stack, I want no props. Hold on. Let me be clear. Let's be clear. Because Stack will, will never hesitate to throw hands. Stack, I got no problems. I don't want no smoke. It is all good. But I'm just saying, you dropped 30 a game or 24 shots. I would have never, I would have went to my grave assuming Jerry Stack never dropped 30 a night. 30 a night. Who else is on this team? Oh, this is a rabbit hole. Sorry. But yeah, I need to know who was on this Pistons team. Let me get this out the way. Go back here. Who was on this team? They finished fifth. Also, they finished last in the division. They were 32 and 50. Oh, God. Wow. Look at this. Let's see this roster. Chutkey Atkins, Dana Barrows, Judd Bushler, Cedric Sabalos, Mateen Cleaves, Michael Curry. Not that Curry. Uh, Cornell David. Cornell David. Eric Montrose. Oh, my God. This roster is horrible. Mickey Moore. Shout out to Mickey Moore. Billy Owens. He was old at this point. Joe Smith, Ben Wallace, young, bun, young Ben Wallace. That might have been, was that his first year with the Pistons? Probably one of his first couple of years because he was a wizard before that. A bullet, excuse me, he was a bullet before that. John Wallace, Jerome Williams, JYD, Junkyard Dog, and Big Nasty, Carlos Williamson. Yeah, I see why he got 30 a night because who, who else is taking shots on this team? Who else is taking shots on this team? Wow, that is a blast from the past. Sorry about that, but that, that was amazing. Okay, so, you know, the problem that we're looking at here is, yeah, Russell Westbrook has two of the top five highest usage rates of all time, and you're now going to bring him in and ask him to be a third option. I'm asking, can Russell Westbrook actually be a third option? Is this now a big three for the Clippers? Are we now ready to jump out the window and say, Russie, PG, Boardman, that's a big three? I'm not willing to say that like that. That to me doesn't sound like a big three. I really would like Bones Highland to get some run here or even Terrence Mann. Like Terrence Mann was able was huge. This lat these last couple of seasons when they've had injuries, like there's no more Reggie Jackson. He's gone. Like there's no more Reggie Jackson. Like I, I don't know why Terrence Mann and Norm Powell can't be that guy. So this it's going to be, I don't know. I don't know what's up with the Clippers, man. Like Tyrone Lou is going to have to really, get into his bag to navigate this. And everyone says we want Russ to be Russ. I don't know why y'all keep saying that. Because what over the last three, four years, what team has actually won from Russ being Russ? That's the part where I'm having a hard time figuring out from, you know, the, the standpoint of, well, what, what do you want Russ to do? Well, we want Russ to come in and be Russ. Well, why? In, in the year 2023, what, what logic is it? What good logic is it to have Russell Westbrook be Russie? Because if we're really going to like parse this and break this down, let's go over here, get off the usage rate stuff. Let's go ahead and break this down here. Like these, these few seasons, like his last couple of seasons in OKC, not great in terms of team performance. Like, that's the thing. If you allow Russie to be Russie, these are the results you're going to get. Like, you're not going to get wins. You're going to get high, high performances. You're going to get stat stuff. And you're going to get all that type of stuff. 
But the one year in, in Washington, you know, you're looking at numbers that are, let me see, get this lined up here for y'all. In Washington, 22 points a game. Let's have 11 assists, 12 assists. Even he led the league in assists that year, right? So 22 and 12. It was the Wizards. That team was trash. Then he went to Houston. 27 a game. Seven dimes. Six rebounds. So he almost averaged a triple-double. I mean, if you round up, he averaged a triple-double with the Wizards, and he was, you know, high level, 27, 8, no, 27, 7, and 6 with Houston. And then he goes to the Lake Show, and in two seasons, he was 17, 7, and 5, and 6, sorry, 17, 7, and 6. Those are still really good numbers, but none of those teams have won anything worth a damn with Russie. And the Lake Show had to bring him off the bench for him to really find a rhythm. So why would Ty Lu in Pandemic P and assumingly bored man now have or now be under the impression that, oh, yeah, let's bring Russ in and let 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 Russ cook like with Russell Wilson early in the year with the Denver Broncos. Let Russ cook. They're letting Russ cook. My thing is, why would you let either Russ at this point cook? It doesn't make any sense at this point in 2023 to let either Russ cook. And we saw what, what had to happen with the Denver Broncos. I mean, if Russy for the Clippers keeps playing around, I don't know where he goes from here. Who's going to take him next year? I don't think this team spins the block and brings Russy back. This team will make the playoffs. This team will be a factor in the playoffs. But the problem is, are they now inheriting their detriment as they're right now a five seed? A team with Kawhi Leonard and Pandemic P in the West is a five seed. They have the Sacramento Kings and the Phoenix Suns who are about to roll out KD in front of them. Where's the movement coming? Unless you think the Grizz are going to tank. I don't know where the movement comes if you're the Clippers. Right now, they will play the Suns in the playoffs. You don't want that smoke. You know, I put a clip out there on the socials. It, it, it did pretty well about, you know, I think the Clippers could be tailor-made to defend against the Phoenix Suns because they have Pandemic P and Kawhi Leonard. But now you bring Russie in there. Russie's not a defensive player. I think someone on the, on the timeline tried to put a, a, a clip of Russell Westbrook playing defense, and that shit was from, like, you know, SD days. <laughs> that shit was standard def. Like, that's how long ago... And I'm like, yo, dog, look how long ago you had to use that clip of Russie playing like good defense, not just getting a steal. because That's not a barrier of playing defense, just actually playing good man to man defense. Like, I, I don't know. They have a lot of teams in front of them. They have Dallas right behind them. They're only half a game up on the Mavericks as we speak. The Pels are not that far behind them. We don't know what the hell's going on with Zion. The Zion thing keeps happening. And I keep asking y'all, you know, I'm not saying he's a bust, but. I mean, there's got to be another word. <laughs> there's got to be a, another word. Because if it ain't a bus, there's something. There's something. And then you got Golden State right there in the plan. And, you know, I'm very high on the Lake show. I like what they did at the deadline. I know they got a lot of ground to make up. But in terms of the loss column, they only got three games to make up to get to the five seed. There's only three games, three games in the loss column separating them as the 13 seed from the five seed. That's doable. 
they're more tailor made right now with the addition by subtraction of losing Rusty and bringing in D'Lo, even though D'Lo got hurt the other night. Like the Lake Show are more in a better position to get it cracking than I think right now the Los Angeles Clippers because you always have to figure out what are we going to do with Rusty. You always have to navigate the Russell Westbrook thing. And I think the fact of Darvin Ham and AD and LeBron and that brain trust in the Lake Show kind of coming together and say, yo, though, we just need to rid ourselves of this problem. He's an enigma. He's a guy, he's polarizing. We need to just focus on, we need to make a run here over these last 20 plus games and see where the hell we, how high we can get to in these standings. And I think being able to bring in all those Timberwolves, the best Timberwolves outside of Ant-Man into the fold, Mo Bamba, and being able to get Pat Bev up out of there and being able to get Thomas Bryant apparently as well had, had the disease of me, got him up out of there. I think this is a huge swing for the Los Angeles Lakers being able to flip this roster over on the fly. But the Clippers, they had a chance here at the deadline to get better, and I thought they did with Bones Highland. And I thought that was like, ooh, that was a that was a pretty good pickup on a throwaway from the Denver Nuggets because you know Mike Malone was done with him. But I don't know. I don't know. Clippers are a big three. Are the Clippers a big three with, with Russie? Y'all know how I feel. Tell me what y'all feel. Moving over to the Eastern Conference, the Atlanta Hawks make yet another coaching move. First, it was Lloyd Pierce a couple of years ago, first time head coach. Now it is Nate McMillan, seasoned vet, ex-player, also about the paint. And some are insinuating that it's Trey Young. That Trey Young is the one that's, you know, getting people about the paint. That is now two coaches that allegedly he has jettisoned. And I'm here to say that's most likely true. I'm not going to sit here and jump out the window and say it's officially all on him in terms of making these types of calls. They got Landry Fields, Knicks tape legend, now in the front office in terms of the GM role and then the, or the VP. He's one of those fancy trumped up titles. But Landry Fields is in the mix now over there. And I'm here to ask you a question. What we're seeing with Russell Westbrook, are we destined to see the same thing with Trey Young? Hear me out. This is a point guard that can stat stuff with the best of them. Gaudy numbers. Look at the box score. Let's let's pull up his numbers here. And let me pull up the screen share. Um, even this year, 27 points and 10 assists. Gaudy numbers, right? For his career. 25 points. So, you know what we do here? 26 points. So, he's giving you 27 and 10 this year. Uh, and over his career, he's giving you 26 and 9. Gaudy numbers. 44% from the field. 35% from three. That's low. For a guy that's thought to be a bootleg Steph Curry, 35% from three is really low. And even this year, it's even lower at 33%. Right? So, this is a guy that if you just go off his numbers, he's amazing, right? You go off his numbers. He plays a lot of games. You know, they, the three-pointers comes in bunches. He always takes six, seven threes a game. The percentage, though, for someone who, again, was out here. Remember, they was proposing a four-point play in Summer League, and he was out there chucking it up and making them? Well, where's that guy at? Because over his career, 32% his rookie year. 36%. So like, oh, okay, now he makes the jump. Nope, back down to 34. Then 38. Okay, so like, oh, okay. Then back down this year to 33. So a little erratic from three where every other year he goes crazy. 36? Okay, yeah, that's good. That's now league average, by the way. 
But at that time, his second year in the league, that was not league average. Even the year 38%, like that's good. But you got Damian Lee out here at 40%. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like Damian Lee is out here at 40%. You were supposed to be the next Steph Curry. Instead, you're looking like great value, Steph Curry. So which is it? And as two coaches, and if you look at the Hawks as a team, you know, they go get a dub a last, was it last night. Yeah, last night in their first game since the firing of Nate McMillan. And what's the guy named? Joe Punty? Yeah, Joe Prunty. Uh, he's an assistant coach that's bounced around a lot. Uh, this team is just not that good. This team is not that talented. Now, when you look at what they have, they bring in DeJounte Murray. And let's get back to usage rate real quick. So <clears throat> usage rate, I spoke about in the last segment with Russell Westbrook. There's the baseline to me as a basketball analyst. 30 is about where it starts to get to, okay, you're ball dominant, right? Trey Young last year was a 34 usage rate. So that's, that's up there, correct? Okay, because we see guys, all-time guys are 38, 37, you know, and into the 40s is like extreme. So 34 is upper tier, top tier in this league in terms of usage rate. They go and they bring in DeJounte Murray, all-star point guard. You see how they have him now listed as a shooting guard. That wasn't always the case. He was thought to be a point guard who could then have Trey Young move off the ball and become a shooting guard. Somehow that's been inverted. I'll let you decide who made that call. But anyway, DeJounte Murray comes in. So you're thinking, all right, well, Trey Young, he's DeJounte Murray was a point guard and an all-star caliber point guard. They can share the rock. So 34 usage rate last year for Trey Young. This year, with an all-star point guard playing next to him, forcibly at the two, he only dropped to a 33. <laughs> the hell's happening, bro? Give up the rock, bro. Give up the rock. Stop playing games with the rock. That's why this team can't go nowhere. That's why this team can't go nowhere. And, you know, he's been fighting these rumors of his involvement in the alleged uh, dismissal of Nate McMillan. And I'll just come and pull up some sound here that they caught him. You know, he pulled up to practice, to shoot around or whatever, and they had to pull up on him. And this is what he's saying on YouTube. I won't play it because it might be some copyright stuff, but I'll play the audio while you look at the still. I got a call. Uh, I actually saw some woes. I was waking up from a nap and heard about it. And, uh, it Took a nap after he made the call and the then saw woes with right now, it? But obviously, I know it. This league is, and uh, they, they know we, we've talked since then, had conversations and stuff like that. So, I'm sure that conversation wasn't um, I awkward. I got love and respect for Nate and the type of person he is and things like that. So um, it's not the last time me and him are going to talk. I talked to all my coaches that I've played for. So, he still talks to Lloyd Pierce? Him. I appreciated him for I mean, being part of that, that run that took us in this franchise further than it's been. So, uh, you should get a lot of love for that. that Fraudulent alone. run. Um, what he's done for us and his team. In this organization, so I got nothing but love for him. And, uh, it's a tough situation, but it's, it's part of this league. And um, but I got nothing but love for So here's the thing: that magical run that 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 they talk about, and it's been referenced a lot. I do a lot of radio out in that part of the country. Um, shout out to my boy Greg Larned on ESPN Radio. I do weekly hits on there, and you know the Hawks are in in that base in Tennessee. There's a lot of a uh, spillover of Atlanta Hawks fans into Tennessee. Um, 
And I was trying to tell them while it was happening that don't buy into the hype of this run to the Eastern Conference Finals. Look at the path they had in beating. Look, look at the path they had to take. They beat an overrated Knicks team who were a fraudulent four seed, the most fraudulent four seed of all time, or at least of my lifetime. Then they went and they had to beat a Philadelphia 76er team that had Ben Simmons imploding before our very eyes. That's who they beat. They didn't beat the Sixers at their highest capacity. They had a fraudulent four seed where Knicks tape fans were running around holding pep rallies after one victory. One victory they wanted to have a ticker tape parade down the Avenue of Americas. Okay, down 8th Avenue, they were going to spin the block on 33rd and 8th and do, you know, a ticker tape parade. If not through the King of Heroes, if not through Avenue of Americas, 33rd and 8th, they were having pep rallies. Grown-ass men having pep rallies after one playoff win. That's the team they had to beat. So, of course, they went and beat them. Then Ben Simmons, the enigma that he is, self, self-destructing in front of all of us. They beat them. And then what happened when they faced a real team? They got destroyed because that's who they were. They were exposed as who they were. So the fact that the the franchise and the organization believe the hype of that run is problematic as hell. Like, how could you look at that team and say, oh, yeah, let's run this back? Not, oh, my God, we just tricked our way into the conference finals. Let's see if we can finally sell high on some of these pieces. I came into this season saying, yo, Trey, Trey Young. And people called up ESPN Radio. Yo, this dude don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, okay, all right. Y'all keep putting this team around. Y'all keep building this team around Trey Young and let me know how far that gets you. I try to tell you in real time that that fraudulent run to the conference finals was just that, fraudulent. You didn't want to believe me. You wanted to believe the hype. John Collins and, the, you know, he posterized MB, put on a T-shirt. Okay, he's going to keep doing that. Has he done it since then? DeAndre Hunter, y'all jettisoned Cam Reddish and gave the bag to DeAndre Hunter. Now, while some of you casuals might think that's still a win, y'all don't know Cam Reddish. And hopefully Portland realizes what they got and they'll let him cook. That's who they really, that's who people need to let Cam cook. Instead of letting Russ cook, let Cam cook. Anyway, but look at this roster. John Collins is supposed to get traded every year. He is perpetually in trade rumors every single trade season, every single draft season, every single off season. Clint Capella is old as hell. He is limited in what he could bring to the table. I like Jalen Johnson a lot. I've been, I've been big on him. Um, AJ Griffin is okay. He's a rook, so you can't really expect too much, at, at least right now. But I think Jalen Johnson... Okanwu is, is another enigma. I, I wouldn't put too much in, into that. But this roster is mid. Look at the mid of this roster. Their big trade deadline acquisition was Sadiq Bey. They still got Bogdanovich. I would ask for a buyout if I'm him. But, you know, to each his own. Uh, DeAndre Hunter, for someone drafted that high and thought to be a defensive specialist and someone that could, that could develop offensively, I haven't seen that. Have you? I haven't seen that. So Trey Young has been skating. It's two coaches fault now that they haven't been able to advance deep into the playoffs outside of one fluke run. When does it become Trey Young's fault? 
They brought in an all-star caliber point guard in DeJounte Murray. And you're still out here with a 33 usage rate. Y'all think I'm bullshit. Let's go ahead and find it. Usage rate. Can y'all see that on YouTube? No, let me slide the screen over. Boom. Usage rate. 33 flat. It was 34 last year. 34.4. It was 33 the year before that. And 35 his second year in the league. Ball dominant. With him as a point guard, someone who by the assist numbers you think is a point guard, but no, he's just ball dominant. He gets his assist because he has to set people up. It's stat stuffing. He's very much like Russi. It's very much like Russi. It'll be gaudy. The numbers will be great. He'll make he'll be an all-star again in the future because he's going to keep putting up the numbers that make you think he is one. Can you win with Trey Young as your number one option? The Atlanta Hawks keep trying to tell us that they can. And they keep, you know, referencing that fraudulent run, that Fugazi run to the conference finals as exhibit A. When we have all this other evidence to the contrary that says, nah, bro, y'all smoking. Y'all smoking that good dope in the A. So which is it? Are we going to keep buying into the hype of these numbers? These numbers of Trey Young? And these metrics that show he's bad defensively? Are we just going to say, well, look, man, he's giving you 10 assists a game. Two years in a row. He's averaged no less than eight assists a game since he's come into the league. That means he's a point guard. I would love for someone who watches basketball and understands what it is to be a point guard to tell me that this means he's a good point guard. The fact that he has so many assists. Because so, as someone who knows basketball and watches basketball and analyzes the game and rewatches games and studies it, that's not the only marker of a point guard. It's part of it. It's a piece of the pie. I would say maybe 25 to 30 percent. It's assist in terms of facilitating. But it's not the be all end all. But if you let, you know, Hawks fans and if you let, you know, the timeline tell you, well, Trey Young is him because look at these assist numbers. I don't know, man. I, I wish y'all luck. I wish y'all luck on that on that Trey Young thing. But I think it's it's going to be it's going to come to a head of where it's going to have to be him at some point. I would trade him. I am on the record. I would trade Trey Young because I think you could go further with Dejounte Murray as the lead guard in that backcourt than Trey Young. Cause look at this stat. Look at this stat right here. In 2019-2020, Trey Young became the fifth player in NBA history to average at least 29 points and nine assists in the season. There's only five players in the history of the NBA that have done that. So again, stat stuffer. But is he a lead dog on a chip? Lead dog on a champion? No. No. I mean, the whole thing was supposed to be him and Steph, right? So let's just, I know this is unfair in terms of chips, so we're not going to worry about that. But let's compare him and Steph. How many years has he been in the league? We're doing this on the fly, so five years. Can we get Steph's first five years? It's probably going to be a lot better for Trey because he's been given the ball. But let's just, let's, just, let's just go there. Let's just do this on the fly and see if this works. 
We should get a year-by-year breakdown. Um, all right, yeah, that's not going to work. Let's get the first five years for Wardell. First five years. Okay. Okay, so from three. Okay, here we go. Off rip. Off rip. From three. 44%, 44%, 46%, 45%, 42% from three. Off rip. And Trey Young's supposed to be the bootleg version of that. And his highest is 38%. Steph was over 42% off rip. Okay, clear difference. And assist numbers. They got better as time went along. Six assists. Six assists, five assists, seven assists, eight. Well, eight and a half is nine. Nine assists. I think we have to focus on the three-point percentage here because Trey Young was thought to be the thought to be not necessarily the next Steph Curry, but a Steph Curry, a, a version of Steph Curry that a team can also build around. And the main thing that Steph has revolutionized the game on is his three-point prowess. And Trey Young has nowhere near the three-point prowess. Like Steph has never shot less than, well, this was the year he got hurt. He's never shot less than 38% from three. And that's with him taking 12 threes a game. That was just two years ago in an injury played year, much like this year. He's never shot less than 38% from three in a season where he's played a lot of games. So I, I, I don't understand. I understand the versions of it. He's fair skinned. He, he has, you know, he's, he's short he's shorter than Steph. He's weaker than Steph. I don't understand the comparisons outside of that. They're both light-skinned, and they both are slotted to be point guards. So if the Hawks want to continue to run this and run this, this trash narrative that Trey Young is him and we could build around him, then they're going to end up where they're always at. Outside of that one fluke year as the five seed, this is where they're always going to be. Eight seed playing. This is where they're always going to be, around 500. They had to win last night just to get the 500. So this is where they're perpetually going to be when they have Trey Young as your number one option. You know what it is. Appreciate y'all for listening. Man, running the numbers up on YouTube, like I mentioned earlier, getting near 100K views. Salute to those who have uh, slid over to YouTube and supported there. Appreciate that. Let's get more of y'all over there. Let's keep running these numbers up. Credibility is uh, already here, but now we're getting validated by metrics. So let's continue to do that. Again, if you want to check out the new live stream debuting this coming Monday at noon Eastern time, TLT or Timeline T, still navigating that. But anyway, just pull up to the YouTube link in the podcast description and you should be able to tap it. And if not, you can always catch the replay on the YouTube channel. So even if you miss it live, just pull up, subscribe. You'll get notified of when the video is live and when the replay is live as well. So uh, this pod, I know y'all missed. Uh, I missed a couple of weeks. I'm back at it. Was really focused on getting this video thing off the ground. Now that I have that off the ground, I can get back to giving y'all pods as well. So I'm a one man band. Bear with me. Appreciate the support. So appreciate the steady uh, analytics of y'all pulling up when y'all can. I appreciate that. Truly, truly, truly believe, truly believe that I do appreciate that. So um, I'll be back next week. We'll be back on the weekly grind with the pods. 
doing this live stream thing as well. Appreciate the love and support on socials. So we building this thing, man. Keep taking this journey with me. We building. For the Sandy Podcast, I'm the Sam D. I'm out.